from prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O Savior, free thy soldier who would follow thee, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not thus were spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified, from all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod, make me thy fuel flame of God. I love that poem, and I'm unnerved by that poem. It's a famous evangelical poem written first part of the 20th century by Amy Carmichael, 55 years missionary in the south of India, largely through opening an orphanage that took in children dedicated to temples, to even temple prostitution in the south of India spoke gospel there in a very dark place. The last 20 years of her life, she had a fall, she had arthritis, she was largely confined to her room for 20 years and she prayed and studied and read and this is the fruit of the heart and the life of a lady who wanted to give her wholehearted commitment to Christ and was seeking to work through that which would drag her down and discourage her and give her despair, not like what you might encounter in your life in the place God has planted you, that struggle for a wholehearted commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that we need to know to have an unqualified faith like that, like this surrender that she prays to have. Well, that's what we're dealing with. Jesus is narrowing his focus in 8.4 to 9, you know, 17 to those who are responding, to those who are committing to him, to his church. And so from 8.4 to 8.21, he's urged us to respond well to him that it wouldn't just be something we hear, but something we latch onto and make our own. And so he gave us the parable of the soils, and he gave us the parable of the lamps, and he gave us that event of his brothers and his mother coming and saying, you know, what are you doing? And all of that is to teach us, respond to me. But Jesus is so gracious, and so Luke, Speaks after that from 822 to 856, recognizing that there's so many obstacles to a full-on life of faith, and you feel them every day. And so 822 to 856, he stresses Jesus' authority. He stresses Jesus as the Savior we need. And so he does so by recording Jesus taking us to school. Normally, Luke arranges things logically, but interesting enough, this is logical too, but it's also chronological. He, Jesus sequences four of our chief threats and enemies, one after the other. It's like he sets them up and knocks them down for us. What is it in your life that challenges you to have a full-on, unqualified faith in me? Well, let's 
encounter some of the worst ones, and that's what he does for us. And he's showing us Jesus is the savior he needs. Really, all of this section leads up to chapter nine, verse 20, when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, okay, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And that's where I've wanted to take you, and that's where we're going. I'm, I'm the savior the world needs. I'm enough for it all. I am worthy for your unqualified faith. So the first threat Jesus carried his disciples through as he took them to school to say that he was enough for it is that he leads his disciples into the storms of life. The winds howl against them. The waves pound over them. They think they're going to sink. They can't make it. Wits end. It's all those things in your life where you feel that. And we discover that he leads his disciples into the storm, that he stills the storm, and he uses the storm in their life. We find that the safest place in the world is not to be left by Jesus on the shore, but to be in the boat with Jesus, even if it's chaotic and even though he appears absent from us. And we see that the raging tempest couldn't wake Jesus up, but the cries of his people woke him up immediately. He's attentive to your cries in the midst of the storm. And the heart of it all is that Jesus takes the real storm that's coming for you and in your place, the judgment of God. Therefore, you need not fear. And then the second threat last week was that Jesus causes his disciples to face our chief adversary, the devil and all his armies. A wretched man is possessed by a legion of demons. When you think that you're overwhelmed by temptation that's coming at you from all corners, a legion of demons. He's tormented, yet the way Luke describes the account is that Jesus goes across the lake, braves a storm because he has an appointment with this man. He goes for the man who's most suffering. And we see that Jesus has total sovereignty over all the demons and the heart of it all is that it anticipates what Jesus will do to save us that Jesus himself will have to become the demon-possessed man. He has to take all of that in his person, as tormented as that is, naked among the tombs and shamed and cast out so that he can pay the price of your sin, that you need not ever fear the devil and what he can bring at you because he has conquered him at the cross and disarmed the principalities and powers. So now today, Luke reports Jesus continuing our instruction, taking us to school with the third and fourth hindrances to a committed faith. It's this intertwined, beautiful story. He deals with disease, an incurably sick woman, and death, an untimely passing of a young girl. And he's saying, I'm the savior of this too. Let's read Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 
As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word endures forever, even, even till today. So what's the Savior we need? We have an outline here that Jesus heals an incurably sick woman and raises an untimely dead girl. I'm just going to walk through it because the details are just beautiful. So recall last week that Jesus is in the region of the Gerasenes and he faces down a, lead, a man with a legion of demons that's ruined him, he releases him. And it's shocking to us that the whole town comes out to see what's happened and they see this man sitting in his right mind, a testimony to Jesus' power and they are frightened and ask Jesus to leave, to depart from them, to go away from them. And they prefer their predictable lives to God unsettling their control and their comfort. And we know people reject Jesus. We, they don't want him intruding into their lives, into their things. In many ways, our nation is rejecting Christ, telling him to go away. Sometimes we do it. So in our text, Jesus returns across the Sea of Galilee he returns to Galilee, to the Capernaum region that he had just left. And so after this short appointment to release the demon-possessed man, he crosses back over. And it's so striking that he has this huge reception. that Everybody's waiting on him and they welcome him back. It's a pleasure to have him back from a stiff arm to an eager reception of Jesus, eagerly waiting for him. One commentator says it this way, it's well nigh unforgettable, this welcome he receives back there. 
When he went away, they missed him. They wanted him back. Sometimes when we fall into sin, we miss fellowship with Christ. We want that fellowship with Christ. And you can be sure that when you wait for Jesus, when you, when you want to welcome him back, he returns. And there's this one man who wants Jesus back more than anyone. And this man is, is Jairus, the, the ruler of the synagogue. He's probably that one man. Each synagogue had one man who was in charge of the arrangements for worship at that local synagogue. So he's an important guy. He's a man of public standing, respected, a man of dignity and authority. He represents the Jewish establishment, the leadership, like he's an in guy. You see, most of the Jewish leaders were were critical of Jesus and, and many of them opposed Jesus. We've already seen that in the gospel and yet, We don't know whether Jairus always had a sensitive heart or whether his desperate need is what opens his heart to Jesus when it's often the case that God uses a critical situation in our lives to to make us humble before him. And so Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and implores him to come to his house. I mean, in public before, before everybody because his daughter, his 12-year-old little girl, is sick, and she's dying. And we see Luke's sympathy, as he's always so sympathetic, and he's the one of all the gospel writers who alone says it's his only daughter, which could also mean it's his only child. We're slowing down and we're seeing just the pain, the, the, the sadness, the, the worry of this man who's, who's thrown his public dignity and persona and social protocol to the wind to fall down on his knees and beg Jesus publicly, even though his colleagues are standing aloof from Jesus. He doesn't care anymore. He knows Jesus is his only hope for his little girl. But really, we see here a picture of a believer, the heart of a believer. I love how the Welsh preacher Jeff Thomas says, the definition of a Christian is someone who has fallen at Jesus' feet. That's a good definition. We know that we're a speck before his glory. We know that we're sinners before his holiness. We fall at his feet for mercy, knowing he's sympathetic to us. The question is, have you, have you fallen at Jesus' feet like this in some way in your life? So Jesus promptly goes with him. He's not reluctant to go with him. He promptly goes with Jairus. Jesus goes with us too when we implore him in the midst of our sickness and disease. He goes with us. And Jesus has gone with those in our body a number. We've seen it as they've walked through illness and they fellowship with Christ in the midst of it. However, as Jesus is accompanying Jairus to his house to heal his dying daughter, something happens. He's, he's interrupted. And we get to see how Jesus handles interruptions. And we just imagine, how does Jairus handle this interruption? How would you? I'm pretty sure how I would. 
But for Jesus, an interruption is an opportunity. I was speaking with Sheila and she said a pastor told her here years ago, when people come into the office or call and you're busy, view them as God's interruptions, see them as opportunities. I think we've seen that in her. God's sovereignty over us means our interruptions may occasion our best ministry. And Jesus shows us that here. But from Jairus' perspective, Jesus is teaching him to wait for God's timing, which is so difficult. It's so tough, especially when his daughter's in such urgent, critical illness. So the crowd is pressing in on Jesus as he walks. They're jostling, bumping him. There's not this respectable bubble around him. It's this dense crowd of people. It's the same word used for the thorns that choke the plants in the parable of the soils. I mean, they're choking him in this crowd. It delays his progress to Jairus' house, but it sets up the scene. Within this mass of people, a woman. Somehow, this little woman manages to approach Jesus from behind. She worms her way, squeezes her way through this mass of people. And this woman has suffered terribly from, from bleeding. For, for 12 long years, this uterine hemorrhage. And she spent all her money on physicians. She's gone everywhere. And then Dr. Luke gives us this detail. She could not be healed by anyone. And he would feel that as a doctor. She went everywhere. We couldn't do it. Our profession couldn't do it. He felt that frustration and hopelessness for her incurable illness. And she lived it every day for 12 years. And... All possibilities of hope came up empty. Every time she had this glimmer of a possibility, it came up nothing, empty. Mark even says she kept getting worse. So she suffers this discomfort and weakness and isolation, this loss of wealth, and in addition, this permanent state of uncleanliness in Leviticus 15. I mean, she can't go to the temple to worship for 12 years. No one can touch her or they'll be unclean. Like she's lost community and fellowship. She has to stand apart. It's so embarrassing for her. The impact on her family, her husband and her children, it's been a grind for 12 years. Physically, materially, socially, emotionally, spiritually. Suffering and... So against all these obstacles, the woman dares push her way to Jesus. Yet she's trying to do it inconspicuously. She she wants to be invisible. She wants to touch his garment and and slip away. Because if people recognize her or if they somehow were aware of her situation, they'd be indignant at her. But Jesus is her only hope. She's tried everything else, and so she pushes her way to him. And she squeezes through and reaches out and touches just the hem of his outer robe, or maybe it's one of the four tassels that Jewish people had to have on their outer robe that reminded them of the covenant of God. And she reaches out and just touches that tassel or that hem of her clothes. It's imperceptible. Instantly, her 
She knows the bleeding has stopped. And this distress and exhaustion turns to elation and joy. She knows. Twelve long, painful, sad years are over. And she slinks back in the crowd. But to her utter shock and dismay, like deer in the headlights, her face instantly getting red, that rush of adrenaline, she hears Jesus say, who was it that touched me? But everyone's been touching Jesus. And so, Everyone, however, says, we didn't touch you. I don't know how they could say that. Peter looks at Jesus and goes, Master, the crowds have, and this kind of visually, Master, the crowds have trapped you in like you're in jail. And they've pressed against you like you were squashing grapes. So, Master, I mean, how can you ask that question? And Jesus replied, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. It's a different kind of touch, and I know it. One commentator says it's not just a miracle of healing, it's a miracle of awareness. I like that a lot. Jesus knows she's touched him in faith. She's had a desperate need and she went and touched him in faith. And that's the sense of verse 47. She realizes that she can't stay hidden. He knows her. In the midst of everybody, he, she knows he knows me and knows what I did. Jesus' power doesn't just go out mechanically. It goes out personally. He knows. So she comes trembling before him. She's so nervous. What's going to happen? She falls down before him. Again, notice falling down before Jesus in thanks and reverence. And she wanted to stay hidden, but now publicly she shares her personal testimony. She confesses what Jesus did for me. She did not want to do that, but now she does. She confesses that deep, debilitating illness, that act of touching Jesus' robe and the result of immediately being healed. And Jesus just looks at her and he speaks these words over her. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And so why does Jesus do this? He didn't have to. Why does he do this? And just notice, he doesn't call the lady out. He doesn't point her out. He invites her to come forward. Jesus knows she needs this, though she doesn't realize it. And so one reason is he needs to instruct her faith. She has faith in Jesus, but it's a very timid faith. It's even a bit superstitious. The idea of just needing to touch Jesus' robe as if magic was invested in the clothing or power in the clothing. Yet, 
the fact that this kind of faith results in her healing, that it's the instrument by which Jesus exerts his healing power has to be encouraging to us. That our mixed up little feeble faith accomplishes this kind of thing. It's not the perfection of your faith, it's the object of your faith. And so Jesus wants to speak personally to her. He wants a face-to-face. He wants to reassure her that it's her personal contact, her personal touch of him, her personal relationship with him that has resulted in the healing, even if her faith is just a smoldering wick or a mustard seed type of faith, it was faith in him instructs her faith and then a second reason is that he wants to declare her healed in a deeper way see she gets to come back and she gets to hear Jesus speak daughter it's the only time in the gospels that Jesus actually addresses a woman daughter I'm Messiah Isaiah 9 daughter such tenderness and kindness and, and welcome and embrace. I, I, it's like, it's, I know you've been through a devastating, grueling time. Daughter, your faith has made you well. That's the instrument I've used to personally heal you. But he says, your faith hasn't just made you well, your faith has saved you. He shifts the word. And what he wants to say is, not only has, my, has your faith resulted in your physical healing, your faith has resulted in the most debilitating illness you have, your sin and your guilt being healed. Like, I have healed you. And then he says, go in peace, meaning go with assurance of your relationship with God and the favor of God and the smile of God and the joy of God and the blessing of God over you. Go in wholeness and all you people out there that might not embrace her, reintegrate her into your society because God welcomes her and has healed her. And she needs that. A complete reversal in her life. And I've loved meditating on this passage in light of Dan getting his biopsy back, the nine, and Bill ringing that gong with his left arm through medical treatment, yes, but it's God who heals. And I've been so encouraged to pray for those who are continuing an ongoing illness in light of this. Now, while Jesus is speaking with the woman, this bad news arrives to Jairus. And though Jesus' healing of the incurably sick woman had to encourage him, the interruption proved tragic and fatal. And I just imagine, you know, imagine his countenance. And so this messenger reports that while he spent time with this woman, possibly because he was delayed by this woman, that now his sweet little 12-year-old girl has died and the messenger says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. And so the messenger is just assuming, yes, he can heal from illness, but he can't overcome death. Like, that's the end. That's the end of hope. So don't even trouble him. And so the question is, how is 
Jairus going to respond? And Jesus urges him, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. And he's encouraging him to greater faith, which is what we need from him. And he's telling Jairus, you believed I could heal from illness, now believe I can raise the dead. And again, Jesus used the save word. And I think what he's trying to do is push us a little bit further and say, I'm anticipating in what's about to happen, what I'm really gonna do to save you in the deepest, deepest way. And so he just lets Peter, James, John, the parents go with him in the house. And the point of that is to be sensitive to the feelings, the discomfort of this little girl. The professional mourners are kind of in the house and they're weeping very loudly, playing the flute even, and it's underscoring the fact that she's dead. You only called the mourners when somebody had actually died. And Jesus looks at the mourners and said, do not weep, she's not dead, she's sleeping. But they know better and so they ridiculed Jesus because they're emphasizing the finality of death. It's hopeless. You can't do anything more. However, Jesus is telling the mourners that death is no more than sleep to him. And so he enters the room with the three disciples and the parents, shuts the door, they're all alone, it's calm, and he takes the little girl's hand. He calls to her, child, arise. He calls to her just like her mother would have called out to her a hundred times to get her out of bed, to wake her up. And her spirit returns to her body because death is a separation of soul and body. It returns, Jesus calls it back. And she immediately gets up, such is the power of Jesus' word, powerful and effective. And Jesus orders them at that point, he's defeated death in the life of this little girl and now he turns to something so mundane, give her something to eat. And what he's saying is that she's not a ghost, she's flesh and blood. And he's helping her enter into ordinary life because it matters to him. One commentator says, he acts like a physician who has just felt the pulse of his patient and gives instructions respecting her diet for the day. The good physician. And her parents are just undone with amazement. And he charges them not to tell anyone, and we wonder, because there have been some public things like this that everybody's heard, but maybe at this point he's saying, I want to limit my publicity to such a miracle of that scale until my time draws near because it's a sign, this raising of this girl is a sign. It points to something more important, it points to the fullest way I'm gonna save because I'm heading to the cross and at the cross I'm gonna endure the penalty of sin, I'm gonna be broken by the curse of God and the judgment of God but when I pay that price, I'm gonna rise and resurrect and my father's gonna take me by the hand, he's gonna say, child, rise but I'm not gonna rise to a mundane life. I'm gonna rise to a glorified life. I'm gonna bring the new world with me. It's Jesus' resurrection that stamps our whole lives with hope. 
Our, our worst enemy is destroyed. It's no accident that Jesus puts this one last. He has authority over the storms in your life, over the devil, over serious illness, and over death. And he's the savior you need, and he's enough for it all. So we can respond to him with genuine faith. And so most years I get to play in the Clay Waycaster Memorial FCA golf tournament. I always look forward to it. And I get to hear Mitch Waycaster talk about his son Clay. And the tournament was this past Monday, so I'm thinking of my passage and hearing Mitch speak about his son. And Clay was this gifted young man, good golfer, loved Jesus, involved in FCA, died tragically at Ole Miss as a freshman back in the early 2000s. And Mitch says, every year, without the belief in the resurrection, our family would not have made it. But because Jesus has resurrected, we know that even though for a while we've lost contact with our son, we have not lost our son. He's more alive than ever right now. One day, real life begins. This is preparatory life. The new heavens and the new earth. Life as it should always have been lived. Soul and body in a glorified world will be with Jesus and will live with our son, Clay. And Jesus is saying, I am your hope and you do not need to be hopeless. And I'm worthy of your wholehearted commitment in me because I'm bringing in the new world for you. So all those things that drag us and discourage us, he urges us, I've overcome them all. You can trust me with your life. And may it be so every day for us. Amen. Let's stand.